This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit hszc.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. So I want to talk today about this koan called Mind Moves. I think that's what it's called. It's Case 29 in the Gateless Gate. And maybe some of you are familiar with it. When I first heard of this, excuse me, when I first read this koan, it was a long time ago. I would say about 15 years Um and I'd never, I wasn't practicing Zen. I just had this little, you know, those little books that you find that have the word Zen on them. And when I read it back then, I had no idea what it meant. And maybe after this Dharma talk, all of you will think still that I have no idea what it means, but we'll see. So the story goes like this. Um, there are these two monks, they're standing outside of a temple. They're Chinese monks. and there's a flag and it's flapping in the wind. One monk says the flag is moving and the other monk argues that the wind is moving. And they're in this heated debate arguing about whose point of view is correct when the sixth ancestor, the Chinese monk named Wei Neng, he walks by and he hears these two monks arguing about whether it's the flag or the wind that's moving. And Wei Neng says, the flag's not moving, the wind is not moving, your mind is moving. And the two monks were awestruck at the sixth ancestor's teaching. So if I were to sum up this um, grandmaster of Zen's teaching in two words, it would be stop clinging, drop views, investigate mind. The monks are so caught up in defending their points of view that they fail to notice uh, their basic misperceptions. So he's chastising the monks and he's saying to them basically, if your mind wasn't so discursive, if your mind wasn't moving and you know chattering, you wouldn't get caught up in arguing about these forms. And do I need to remind you that is it even worth arguing about these forms, getting your body minds agitated? about these forms that are, um, and by forms, I mean sense objects, physical objects, these transitory empty forms, you're getting all riled up about them and you're not taking the backward step. So they're identified with thinking mind and they're relating to the flag and wind as if they are substantial and independent of their own sensory apparatus. So they're identifying with delusive mind and they're being, they're being all agitated about whose point of view is correct. So they're also caught up in the linguistic concepts of flag and wind as if they are actually separate from each other and not relying on each other. So they, take, they fail to take the backward step and investigate the one that's perceiving the flag and the wind, right? feeling the wind on their bodies, feeling, hearing the flapping of the flag in their minds. So they, they, they fail to recollect or use, use the word 
Sanskrit word sati, right? To recoll recollect the memory that the flag and wind and mind, as well as themselves, are also suffused with Buddha nature. And that the essence of mind, shunyata or emptiness, it doesn't move. So Wei Nang uses skillful means, he uses um, words to go beyond words. He slices through their fixation on sensory objects, but most especially thinking mind, right? The concept of thinking mind. They're not aware that they are identified with this thinking mind. So a little context about Wei Neng. Some of you may know that he um, is considered the founder of the, so of the Southern School of Zen. And he lived in China somewhere around 638 to 713. This is during the Tang Dynasty. So um, after receiving the robe and the bowl and the transmission of the Buddha mind from the fifth ancestor, he fled the, his, his master's monastery fearing for his life because the monks there felt that this illiterate woodcutter should not be endowed with um, the insight that he was endowed with. So he stays hidden for a decade or so with a, I've heard a band of nomadic hunters or a band of brigands. I'm not sure which one is true. Maybe they're both true. And the legend goes that this koan is his first teaching after emerging from forest. So Wei Nang woke up as a boy hearing a verse from the Diamond Sutra that a merchant was reciting. And this is the verse that he woke up to in the Diamond Sutra. Bodhisattvas, Mahasattvas should generate a pure mind. Thus, they should not activate the mind dwelling on form. They should not activate the mind dwelling on sound, scent, flavor, feeling, or phenomena. They should activate the mind without dwelling on anything. Wei Neng says in his um, sutra, when the mind is pure, the Buddha land is pure. This means always working with the Buddha mind in every moment of thought. So when you see forms and activate your mind dwelling on the forms, you are a deluded person. If you are detached from forms, even as you see these forms and activate the mind without dwelling on forms, then you are an enlightened person. So clearly these two Chinese monks are not working with the Buddha mind in every moment. Their bodies and minds are agitated, they're identified with thinking mind, and they don't take the backward step to understand that, to investigate. So the key word or phrase here is without dwelling or the word unsupported. In Sanskrit, it's apratishita, A-P-R-A-T-I-S-H-I-T-T-A, which the Buddhist scholar Edward Kanze translates in a number of ways. So when it comes to applying uh, this word in situations between two objects, it's not relying on anything, not being carried away by anything, not clinging to anything. Clearly the monks are doing all those, right? They are clinging to their views. They're being carried away in their stories and their points of view. When it comes to emotional experience, it's not Paramita or perfect, the perfection of wisdom. 
and not believing in anything blindly. So Wei Neng is reminding the monks that they are stuck in delusion and they're suffering because of it. They're not working with this Buddha mind. The main teaching of the Diamond Sutra is that the essence of mind does not fluctuate. So Buddha mind has no characteristics. And in the Mahayana Prajna Paramita Sutras, Buddha mind is equal to emptiness or shunyata. So small mind flaps like the flag, but is buffeted by the breeze of karmic conditioning. So when we get so caught up in our perceptions as being right, we miss the totality of interdependence, right? We miss our connection. We miss that these two monks are rising together, flag and wind, the flagpole, whatever else is around them, everything is interconnected. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh would say, we all interbeat or we all inter are. Right? But they are so, their bodies and minds are so constricted that they fail to understand this. So they're um, just caught in delusive thinking, caught in samsara. So when we're caught up like this, we fail to also notice um, the, the constancy of change, right? Eventually the wind will die down and that flag will no longer flap and there'll no longer be a wind. So everything is changing. And then the monks would walk away and hopefully their argument would drop. Who knows what kind of monks they were. Maybe they carry on the argument even after they're chastised by Wei Neng. It doesn't say anything about that. And that also that these uh, objects are transitory, right? And also another aspect is that suffering or lack of ease is also impersonal, right? So it's basically the three marks of existence, the not self-characteristic, everything changes or impermanence, and then also that, that suffering or disease, distress is inherent in this human life. So of course there is, um, these forms do exist, right? So one side is the ultimate truth, right? That, that all these forms arise from the one source, but the other side, that doesn't make the relative truth unreal. So there is flag, there is mind, there is wind, there are these monks, except that this materiality and mentality exists in a transitory, impersonal, and interdependent way. So although Wei Neng is chastising the monks because they're stuck in um, thinking mind, it's not to say that these forms don't exist, right? He's just trying to help them be liberated from their attachment to these sensory objects. So fast forward about 150 years and another great Zen master um, awakens 17 monks with the same koan. Her name is Miao Shen. She lived in about 880 in China. So she expounds the Dharma with this koan. So there's these 17 monks that travel to see her master, Yangshan Kuiji. They arrive too late to climb the mountain. So they are stuck at the bottom of the mountain at the gatehouse or the guest house where, uh, which is underneath the guidance of Miao Xin. The Zen master, Yangshan, gave her this responsibility. So she overhears these monks arguing about whether the, the flag is moving or the wind is moving and Wei Neng's teaching. 
And she says to her attendant, what a shame that these blind, 17 blind donkeys have worn out so many pairs of straw sandals on their pilgrimage and cannot even dream about the Buddha Dharma. Her attendant tells the monks what Miaoshin said, and they are humbled. They were very sincere in their search for enlightenment. And even though she was a woman, um, they sought her out for her teaching because they, uh, well, maybe they themselves were progressive enough when they heard the words of her, her mastery of the Dharma, they sought her out and wanted to ask her for her teaching. So as they enter the gatehouse to talk with her, she says, please come closer. But before they get close enough, she shouts, the wind is not moving, the flag is not moving, the mind is not moving. And all 17 monks are awakened by this, right? They don't even go up the mountain to study with Yangshan, they become Miaoshin's disciples instead. So now we have 17 points of view, right? 17 attitudes, 17 points of view of monks discussing, debating this, um, this koan, right? A analyzing it. And I think this points to uh, also, they're not, you know, both Miaoshin and Wei Neng's teachings are pointing to having our own direct experience, right? And so at least the first two monks were discussing a direct experience, right? They were both experiencing physically the flag flapping and the wind moving. Now, 150 years later, these 17 monks who are not even discussing their own direct experiences, they're actually debating, right? They're involved in caught up in dualistic analysis. They're debating these, uh, this teaching from 150 years ago. So they're very removed from not only Wei Neng's teaching, they're also removed from that experience of those two Chinese monks. And I think that this is what Miao Xin is pointing to. She's just like, you know, just that um, wake up right now in the present moment. This is where we get to be liberated now, not discussing and debating a teaching from 150 years ago. So, you know, they're, ironically, these monks um, are not even aware that they're doing the same thing that those Chinese monks 150 years before were doing. So they're caught up in linguistic um, concepts, they're arguing with each other, and they're again not taking the backward step, right, to investigate their own perceptions, right? So for me, this is what happens when we don't investigate our beliefs and uproot our our identities, right? When we forget to investigate and take the backward step, we get caught in this back and forth, what I sometimes call ping pong mind. You know, you're just going back and forth, back and forth, getting caught in the back and forth rather than investigating the ping pong ball, the one who's watching, the uh, mental, physical energy of what's going on. So um, both Wei Neng and um, Miao Xin are pointing out and emphasizing the liberation, like I said, in each moment, they're trying to slice through the, uh, the thinking mind of these monks, helping them experience Kensho or direct insight in, those, in that moment, right? Not relying on anything, dropping the dwelling on forms. Like the Diamond Sutra says, drop the dwelling on forms, don't rely on anything, don't just cling to beliefs. Um, the Dharma talk. 
Yes, like the Dharma talk. Is that what someone's saying? I don't know what happened. Anyway, I'll, I'll just continue. <laughs> so these monks are fixated on these sense objects and what underlies their fixations or these points of view is, is an attitude. They have a settled way of thinking or feeling about the wind and the flag, right? And of course you can extend that that to thinking about people, thinking about politics. So we're just using wind and flag as substitutes for any forms, any phenomena that we get caught up in. So they're being um, duped essentially by the proliferation of small mind. And so the Buddha calls the habit of mind that leads to conflict, papancha, it's P-A-P-A-N-C-H-A. Saro Bhikkhu, who is a monk in the Thai forest tradition, says that this word isn't clearly defined in the Buddhist scriptures, but it's almost always associated with negative connotations and thoughts about craving, conceit, views, and um, conceptual proliferation, right? So it's not, it's not a positive term. Right? It also can mean obsessive and repetitive thinking, exaggeration, distortion and self-reflexive thinking, right? So maybe um, arguing about whether a flag is moving or the wind is moving is perhaps kind of a trivial matter. However, this fundamental proclivity of mind to proliferate can lead to harm when there's a strong sense of self, right? There's a strong sense of self behind this view, right? Where we're hooked into the view, we know we're right, and if someone um, disagrees with us, we're defending that point of view, right? There's a constriction in our body-mind that wants to defend, defend that point of view. So, um, so when we defend our points of view, sometimes people defend those points of view uh, and cause harm to themselves and other people. Sometimes people even act violently, not just with harsh speech, but actually act out physically against people. And this is because we wrongly believe that these sensory objects, whether uh, it's physical form or it's mentality, so it could be a thought or a sensation that we are grasping on to and making a story about. So this fundamental view that these that phenomena are us is rooted in ignorance, right? The Pali word for ignorance is vija. V-I-I-J-A. It means the absence of accurate knowledge. So at the heart of ignorance is the conceit of a thinker, a sense of ourselves as a solid, independent, and abiding person. So um, a separate I am. Right? And the Buddhist teaching of the three marks of existence, like I said, one of those teachings is the not self-characteristic, which is what this is pointing to. So in one of the Buddha's short sutras called Quickly, he says, the way to establish peace is to, and I quote, put an entire stop to the root of objectification classifications. I am the thinker. He goes on to say, touched by contact in various ways, a monk shouldn't keep theorizing about self. Stilled right within, a monk shouldn't seek peace from another or from anything else. For one stilled within, right? One stilled within, there's nothing embraced, 
So how can you be rejected or so how rejected, right? So for one stilled within, there's nothing embraced. So how rejected? And in this other sutra called the Honey Ball Sutra, he declares, the Buddha declares that if we're able to not embrace or cling to the sense of self, then this false self won't feel rejected. And he says that this will end the obsessions of passion, resistance, views, flags moving, wind is moving, conceit and ignorance. So that is the end of taking up rods and blades of quarrels and divisive and false speech. That is where these evil, unskillful things cease without remainder. I feel like this is a very important, relevant teaching from the Buddha right now. And I think I chose this koan, not only because it was the first koan that I ever read, but also because I feel I feel that Hui Nang's and Miao Xin's teachings are about dissolving the barriers in our own hearts and minds, right? Dropping our own fixed views and investigating, investigating whether my perceptions are either causing conflict and suffering or liberation and ease for myself and other people. I think that's in Buddhism one, one way that we can gauge whether or not we have the right view of what's going on is if we are undefended or unconstricted and whether or not our perceptions are harming people or by our behavior and speech harming people, ourselves. I think it's a good gauge of our behavior. Um, so this for me, even though I know it's about a flag and, a, and, a, and wind, to me, it's much more than that. I think you can extrapolate out from the flag and wind into other areas of, of into other conversations. So it's like in the moment with the flag and wind, not only are the two monks not seeing the interbeing of the flag and wind, they're also not seeing their own interbeing. And that's, I think, the heart of the matter. So there's a division, their perceptions are causing division and agitation. So for me, um, it's like investigating whether I'm believing in something. What are my beliefs? What are my perceptions? So I think that's really an important backward step, as Dogen would say. So in the Honeywell Sutra, again, the Buddha carefully explains how the perceptual process can lead to conflict. Even just from our eyes making contact with forms like the flag and the wind, or include or another person. So here's my rephrasing of what the Buddha says with a little with some contemporary references. So when the eye meets a form, eye consciousness arises, and this contact gives rise to feelings of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, right? So those are the three sensations that arise. And so for a person, say, who supports the current president, seeing a flag, an American flag, often invokes feelings of patriotism and willingness to defend this concept, right? The concept of American values. And for this person, seeing a person holding maybe a Black Lives Matter sign or a sign 
for um, the incoming president gives rise to unpleasant feelings to them, sometimes intense enough to act out away from their own feelings, right? It's about their reaction to what's going on. So it's like they're the stimuli of seeing signs of seeing the flag is generating internal experiences that either they're unaware of, they're not able to stay with, and so therefore they act away from them. And sometimes these feelings are so intense that this attachment is so intense that people, as we have seen over the past several months, cause harm. They hurt each other, they hurt people, they more than hurt sometimes, they kill people, they cause property damage, and then on the other side, of course, it's a similar process. It may just be different forms and ideas that are um, agitating people. So for a person holding a Black Lives Matter sign, seeing a person holding, um, they, they perceive, or uh, yeah, they perceive someone with a flag, someone dressed in red, white, and blue as um, an enemy of theirs, right? So. The process is the same. It's just how people are interpreting the experiences, right? And I, and I, that's essentially basically the flag moving, the wind is moving, right? So there is such a division there. I am a red person or I'm a, from a red state or I'm from a blue state. You know, I believe in American values. And how often do we even, are we even allowed to in our uh, society to actually have a, a conversation, a dialogue about that rather than a debate, right? A debate you're out to win. For me, a dialogue, you're uh, engaged in dialogue to understand. So debating is about winning, putting down your opponent, proving that you're right. To me, a dialogue is getting to know somebody, understanding their values, and finding our commonality so that we can come from unity rather than from division. So on either side of the political aisle, as, as they say, people perceive or label and they think about, right? Just like the flag, mind moving, the same thing. We think about, I think about how I feel about the people who voted for the current president, how I feel about um, people who are causing um, property damage, how I feel about police officers who may have injured um, black people. So it's, and the, and the less we're able to, and I mean, obviously it's part of, I guess, living in a large country. We don't, we don't aren't sitting around like this and having conversations um, and discussing how we feel, discussing what, where we get stuck. And it'd be really wonderful if we had politicians actually who, um, who did that, who united, who brought together in dialogue and conversation rather than divided. And I think that that's not easy. Uh, maybe it's just completely idealistic of me because um, our society, politicians want power. You know, many of them are there for service and many of them are there for power. And that's when we, that's clinging, there's a lot of identity there, a lot of ego there. <clears throat> so instead of conversing, um, often there's just division, right? And I feel like nobody benefits 
well, some people do benefit, I guess, from dividing us rather than seeking our commonality, not only in the country, but also our universal humanity. And so this is taking the papancha, I'm, I'm making it into a verb, forgive me, people who are um, experts in Pali or Sanskrit, but papanchaizing, flag wind, there's a debate 150 years later, there's 17 monks debating about it and so on and so on, right? So it goes from these unexplored beliefs and identities, they just continue and we inherit, many of us inherit these inverted views from our family, from our neighborhood, and often these views go uninvestigated, right? Usually people who uh, have parents who are religious or parents who are political or parents who exercise, we pick up these habits of body-mind from our parents, from our siblings, from our relatives, from our neighborhood. So there's all these ways that we are conditioned. And, um, and at least for me, I really did not explore the conditioning that I received uh, in a certain way until I started practicing Zen Buddhism back in 2001 in Austin, Texas. So I think that um, it's important to recognize and appreciate our differences, of course, right? Um, and I think until we actually recognize our differences and appreciate our differences and not try to make the other person wrong, it's the flag, it's the wind, until we can actually take the backward step and investigate our own bodies and mind, right? What's going on here, experiencing some spaciousness here, then it's really difficult to engage in a spacious, open conversation with somebody who expresses different opinions than ourselves. At least that's my experience. I know if I go in with judgment instead of curiosity, people sense our energy. So for me, this koan uh, and Zen practice is even more, it's very important um, for me to continue when, when stories arise, narratives arise about people who are different than myself, to not dwell on that, to drop those thoughts, whatever sensations arise, and really just allow that to release. And it's over and over, right? Practicing with Buddha mind in every moment, practicing with Buddha mind every moment, there's that liberation from arising um, karmic formations. Of course, I mean, obviously I'm not able to do this all the time, but when I get triggered, you know, um, a lot of constriction or anger or frustration, it's a sign, an immediate sign to stop and pay attention to what's going on, settle into the hara and allow that constriction, that dukkha, constricted consciousness, to dissipate, to fall away, right? Because as we know, everything arises, persists, and fades. So the same with anything that's happening internally, it fades away. And practicing zazen, obviously, is one of the key ways that we get to experience, moment after moment, the uh, lack of solidity here. Right, the ever-changing body-mind that I call Heather, inherited name from my, from my family. 
Um, so for me, Weinang and Yaoshin, they're pointing to that which animates both the flag and the wind, that animates both Republicans and Democrats, independents and anarchists, you know, that which has no boundaries, no perspectives, and continues without a trace. So I don't really have um, answers as many as much as I have questions, which basically are, you know, how can we feel the wind or see the flag flap without small minds associative proliferations, right? How can the flag flap and the wind move? And how can we just allow that phenomena to happen without personalizing it, without contriving stories and concretizing or reifying our experience? And what I like to call like making somebody into a conclusion that person always does this, or I always do that. And the more that I experience myself as concrete or as a statue, if you will, then I move forward with a very thick sense of who, who I am. And I overlay my ideas about people in the world onto what's happening, rather than, um, as Dogen says, allowing the myriad things to arise and, and illuminate this one, right? Um, mostly what we do is the opposite. We, we throw our sense of self, our opinions and beliefs onto things, and that's delusion. We're not really allowing the world to illuminate us. Instead, we're doing the opposite. So for me, this koan just reminds me to continue to pay attention to the one that's perceiving and to do my best that instead of engaging in habits of mind, engaging papancha, the proliferations, just to stop and maybe feel my feet on the floor or um, put my hand on my heart, something that connects me to the physicality of the present moment. What's going on in the body dropping, as my teacher would say, Zen is a body practice. How do I drop from the mind, wherever the mind is? And how do I stay present in the body? Because for me, this is where transformation happens. This is where emotional energy transforms itself is through the body. So um, any constrictions here, any held beliefs here um, that are causing me to suffer need to be explored. So rather than holding on to my idea that the flag is moving, to just pay attention to what's arising in the body and allowing that to settle, allowing that to dissipate, and moving forward with less of a sense of a solid Heather and more of a curiosity about Heather in each moment. And that already is a curiosity about life and other people so taking that posture, mental posture of curiosity and investigation rather than judgment and conclusion. And um, I think that I'll just end with the verse that Wei Neng wrote on the monastery wall, which some of you may be familiar with. It's his awakening verse that um, 
made him be recognized by the fifth ancestor. So Bodhi fundamentally has no tree. The bright mirror also has no stand. Fundamentally, there is not a single thing. Where could any dust alight? So I'll just read it again. I feel that even though sometimes we grasp onto the sense, we grasp onto the idea of emptiness and Miaoshin slices through that, just like Nagarjuna, the emptiness of emptiness. I feel like that teaching of Wei Neng's that can be profoundly liberative in this moment. So Bodhi fundamentally has no tree, right? Not supported, not dwelling. The right mirror also has no stand. Fundamentally, there is not a single thing where could any dust alight. Thank you for your attention and your practice. Thank you, Heather. Um, we, is it okay if we open up for questions, Heather? Sure, yeah, I wasn't sure if you end with a chant and then go to questions, so I just thought I would. Oh. oh there's yeah, Mio. Mio's here. Yeah. Yes, uh, however you Questions first, then the chant. I read this thing that's somewhat interesting to me and in what you're talking about. I, you know, I think, um, I do think it's liberating to hear those words and to not have these solid, you know, um, who we are, identities, I suppose. But I read the other day and I have to go back and look at the rigor. I'm not a scientist or a doctor, so I, I don't have the intellect to know, but I'd have to, you know, kind of do some investigation about the study, but there was a study done with brain scans and they said that there is a physical part of your brain that forms with your experiences at four years and younger and a little bit after that even, that remains the same sort of unchanged physical mass in your brain for your entire life. And a lot of that um, is sort of, I guess, that core identity. So I found that sort of, I had to kind of pause and think about that because that's not necessarily what I want to be so, but I thought that was interesting. Just thought, I wonder what you think about that given um, kind of what you're talking about. Um, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'll just speak from my own, my own Heather experience. I remember once uh, I have these three amazing nieces and I was with them, two of them a while back. One of them was about three. And I remember her name is Francesca. I remember asking her, where Frankie was, that was her, that's her nickname, Frankie. I said, where's Frankie? And she said, I don't know. And I thought, oh yeah, right, she doesn't know. At some point, we don't know. At some point where we don't know who we are, where we are. And then at some point, the narratives kick in, the stories about our family, ourselves, a sense of self is developed um, in children. And, you know, perhaps, you know, my, yeah, and so with, if there is some sort of um, 
sense of a continuous self. I mean, I think that that's my experience. There's a sense of a continuous Heather. And yet, of course, I have certainly changed from the time I was a baby to now. And I think that um, for me, the teachings of the Buddha helped me to experience the change, the transitory nature of Heather so that I don't get stuck in old habits that are harmful. I think that was most liberative for me when I started practicing Zazen was having a embodied experience of not self impermanence. And I already had an embodied experience of suffering. That's what brought me to the cushion. The aspects of impermanence, uh, teaching of impermanence and not self were uh, really liberating for me. So even if, the, if this is true, that there is, as you said, some physical aspect of the brain that correlates to some sense of self, uh, I don't, yeah, if that's what the neuroscientists are saying, I, I believe them. And then for me, it's what's the experience being on the cushion and how practicing Zazen affects my perceptions and my how does it liberate me from suffering? So I don't know if that's a, I don't know if I'm answering your question or not, but uh, that's my, that's what comes up for me right now is what's the practice on the cushion and off the cushion, regardless of what neuroscientists are telling me, or telling you is what's, where's the liberation lie here. And for me, the less I, the, the less strong my identity is, the less strong sense of sense self I have, the more fun my life is. I'll just say that. The more happy and content I am um, to be who I am in this moment. So. That's very helpful. Thank you. Hello. Hi, Ron. Hi. Hi. Thank you. I just thought I would share uh, uh, an insight I had of my own and see how this relates to what you're discussing. <clears throat> I like to write and I write poetry and I've been doing it for like 40 years. And recently I've been on a, 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 a tear to throw out old papers and sort old papers. And um, I came across papers that when I read them poems particularly, and when I read them, I thought I had to think, did I write that? Um, and um, sometimes it takes a while to recall um, exactly where and when I might have been or what state of mind I might have been in. And in a way, I, I don't know if this is a reflection of, you know, just phenomenology in the Zazen sense, but maybe it's a, 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 a parallel or, or uh, instructive in how, no matter how attached I was 
to whatever drove me to write something at one time. Now I don't even recognize that person. And um, that could just be <laughs> amnesia or, <laughs> or it could be instructive or just as a, an example of how it is, you know, those things we were so passionately attached to at one time no longer mean so much to me now. And it's like, well, even if I'm not conscious of letting go of things, things get let go of. Um, and maybe Zazen just expedites that process. I'm just speaking a little extemporaneously here, but. Yeah, well, I feel that that's my experience is if we don't cling on to arising phenomena, whether that's a poem or the flag or some idea about who I should be at this point in my life, then it does let go because it, it, it's never not letting go. I mean, the dynamic process of life is just that, right? That it's everything is transitory. So we're the ones who cling onto what's arising and try to make a me out of it, try to fix it. And, you know, that's not, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're not, we can't be passionate about something, of course. Just like you're saying, you're very passionate about writing poetry and myself as well. I mean, I was a professional writer for a long time and I thought by now I would already have published a book and I have a master's degree in creative writing and journalism. And I know, and you know what, if I hold on to that idea that Heather Yeruso should have already published a book by now, is that a liberative thought for me or, or does that cause me to suffer? Does it make me have more discipline to write or does it not make me, maybe make me is not the right words there, but for me, it's like, What's the result of holding on to a thought? If it causes suffering or distress, that's suffering right there. So just drop that. So uh, yes, I mean, I think that's part of aging is we often, what we were passionate about before has changed, you know, and how do we embrace that rather than be upset about it? And sometimes change is wonderful, right? I mean, sometimes, we often see change as the enemy, but actually sometimes change, like the end of a period of Zazen, if we're having some physical or emotional discomfort, uh, we welcome the bell, right? So I think, again, having a fixed idea that change is bad or change is unwelcome, again, is a fixed idea. So any fixed ideas I have about myself usually results or usually are suffering. So the passions that we had when we were younger, sometimes they don't carry through as we grow older, we mature psycho-emotionally, spiritually, other things take um, precedence in our life. So as I, I say that like Zen ate my life, you know, so that's kind of where I am. Um, and I think it does speak to that everything's in process, everything's dynamic. Thank you.
Thank you. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Heather. Good to see you. Good to see you too. Jonathan uh, and I, we spent some time at Tassahara together. Yes. Tongariah practice period. Well, that was a great talk, Heather. Thank you very much. It's difficult to talk about that kind of thing. I really appreciated the way you're talking about it. Um, I mean, I'm thinking it's like, it's hard for me to even say anything. Uh, <laughs> but um, particularly what you were saying, I, I mean, a lot, I can relate to a lot of what you're saying, most of it, basically, all of it. <laughs> but about the body practice being helpful, um, uh, it's, a, it's a strange thing to talk about. You know, people, I mean, if you get too caught up in your thinking mind, it, it actually, I think, does distort your um, experience of the world, in particular, your experience of the world as being pro in process and, and even in your relationship with, with everything else as being something that is, is also in process. Um, it's interesting, too, I feel like I don't think Buddha's message is telling you to abdicate your point of view. It's just, it's kind of talking about clarifying it, recognizing that it's, um, it's, it's a process and it's interconnected with other things. Um, but I do think that the body practice really sometimes helps that you, you can't necessarily make those distinctions with your thinking mind. And, um, Part of what's been so healing for me in practice is, uh, I don't want to jinx it even by talking about it, but I mean, for me getting, uh, for many years, I feel like getting being too identified with my uh, thinking mind. I just spiral into anxiety and depression. And, uh, but I find that Zazen and, and mindfulness practice is honestly the most helpful thing for that. It just, it, it kind of short circuits that that tendency or you don't, you don't get so wrapped up in those things. And it clarifies it as well. Um, I don't know, it's interesting too. I mean, even what you're talking about, about being a writer and wanting, feeling like you should be a certain way. I mean, lately I've been suffering with some of that stuff as well in terms of what I, where I think I should be or, but I think in practice, it kind of practice keeps reminding me that I know better than that, that that's not very helpful. I mean, those, those thoughts can still come up and kind of get a hold of you. Anyways, I'm just going on and on here. But um, yeah, it's hard stuff to talk about, but I really appreciate your talk. And uh, yeah, it's always good to remember. <laughs> I'm sorry, I guess that's not really like a question. It's just... That's, that's okay. Anyways. Okay. Thanks, Heather. I think that um, for me, the body practice, dropping out of the mind, letting go of stories over and over, over and over, allowed a lot of heavy emotions to be purged somehow from my body. I know there's a lot of shame and grief and anger that taking the backward step and not turning away from the physicality of all those sensations in the body was helpful for me. And it may not always be helpful every moment for, 
for people, some people. But for me, it was very helpful to, um, as Uchiyama Roshi says, you know, opening the hand of thought, right? It's empty. So is this here as well. I think too, with uh, this political climate that we've all survived over the past four years, at least for me, it's not so easy to not, not make uh, not make people other, you know, to really understand or try to understand their point of view is helpful for my own liberation, right? And then the more liberated we feel, that radiates out to other people. And I, I feel like, I remember when September 11th happened, I was living in Austin, Texas, and I had already begun practicing at Austin Zen Center. And I remember going to the Zen Center that night, I think it was a Tuesday, right? It was like, I went there for our Tuesday evening meeting. And for me, the sense of America, like I, I wasn't really sure where America was. I mean, like it just, what does it mean, this word America? And I think that was my first taste of the insubstantiality of concepts is that I don't really know where America is. Is that I don't feel this body mind is American, but that there's people who do have a strong sense of identity with America and American values. And sometimes it seems very contradictory. We hold certain values and we say they're American and of course, that means we're, you know, we're number one. Some people feel that way. But how often do we actually explore the myth of America, number one? And no one really on a national, I mean, maybe now with uh, uh, Kamala Harris having the first um, woman of color vice president, maybe there will be some exploration of that, of that myth of America. So anyway, so the concepts, these linguistic concepts even the, the concept of Heather, I mean, just continuing to allow that to evolve rather than fix Heather into a statue or fix the current president into a statue, which is very difficult because I certainly wanna fix that person. I feel more real then and more solid if the other person is more real and solid. And then somehow there's an energy behind that that makes me feel good or less like I'm gonna be annihilated. <laughs> so. Yes, Richard. Oh, thank you. This, this conversation is fascinating. One thing that arose in my mind is uh, concerning the flag moving or the mind moving or whatever, is when I personally, as an ego or an entity, feel motivated to comment on any or all of this. Uh, when does my vote matter? When is it important for me to send in my ballot? Uh, when do I become part of the body politic? Uh, suddenly that became very important this year. Over 80 million people who feel like I feel sent in a ballot. So I think in some small way, 
when my mind moves, perhaps it is important, at least for one moment. And, uh, well, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Thank you. Richard, thank you for that comment. I um, I think it's a it's not about not engaging for me. It's about how we engage or how I engage. So if I'm casting my ballot uh, in a way that's um, with an angry or an angry or vindictive energy, I mean, that that's one way I can cast my ballot. I cast my ballot in a way that's about peace and unity and hoping that we can progress in some way. And maybe this, maybe it's still a point of view, but I feel like the less aggression, I come from a, a household, a neighborhood, a culture of aggression and arguing. So uh, it's a very natural natural proclivity of for me to to always argue <laughs> to argue so casting my how can i cast my ballot just in casting my ballot reflecting my values investigating those values and just casting it uh, hoping for peace hoping for justice and also knowing that those 55 or however many millions of people voted for the other candidate uh, the incumbent president how they're disappointed, how they feel on things are unjust, how they feel like they might be annihilated, uh, how they feel that America is not working for them. You know, so it's it's um, it's almost like a sibling relationship, right? One sibling gets something, the other sibling doesn't, right? There's just this back and forth about who's getting treated uh, a better way, and maybe if we all spent you know decades in therapy before we become parents and before we become presidents and before we become Congress people or city council or whoever is in charge of policymaking, maybe we'll, we'd eventually have a more psycho-emotionally healthy and balanced um, way to view the world, to be in the world, to take care of the environment, which is taking care of ourselves. Well, right now, that doesn't seem to be what's transpiring. Our collective conscious is definitely one of Manifest, manifesting division, separation. And so I, I hope I cast my ballot in a way that wasn't adding to all that divisive energy. Just that's all I can really do. So it's not again about not engaging. It's actually about engaging uh, in a way. What's, so it's not, it's not about let me just go be a hermit, which I did for a number of years at Tassajara, but that's also engaging, right? Engaging this one here to find out what's going on and to be more peaceful internally so I could be more peaceful externally in my relationships with other people. So I hope that's how I cast my ballots from a place of, I, non-separation sounds a little too too profound, but just from a place of less separation, <laughs> I hope. <laughs>